Welcome to Textile Update, the podcast where we can share our passion for textiles, fibers, and yarns. This is Gwendolyn Hustvedt. And now, in the fourth and final podcast on protein fibers, we turn our attention to silk, a completely different protein fiber that uh, opened the door to our understanding of how to manufacture fibers. The final topic uh, for protein fibers is silk. Now, I am not going to have a separate podcast on spider silk. We're, we're focusing on silk from silkworms here. Uh, so I'll give you a brief explanation of why we could actually even talk about spider silk, but ooh, I hate spiders. Um, so the protein that we make silk, uh, that silk fibers are made from, like we, like, you know, nature, um, silk fibers are made from a protein called fibroin such a 20th century word. Um, fibroin, like it rhymes with groin. Um, it, it, fib is like a lie. I, I don't know. It's a tough word. We don't see it on the back of shampoo bottles, right? We, we'll see keratin on the back of shampoo bottles, but we'll see silk protein on the back of shampoo bottles if, if they're using fibroin or ground up silk fibers, uh, which so would have nothing to do with your hair. But uh, uh, fibroin is the name of the uh, uh, protein, the polymer that makes up the silk fiber. Um, but of course it was a huge victory for us to understand that the polymer that makes up the silk fiber is very different in its nature than keratin, the, the polymer that makes up uh, other protein fibers from animal sources. Uh, in particular, uh, fibroin includes amino acids that uh, do not have sulfur. So there's no sulfur, there's no disulfide bonding, uh, which means that there's that's one, one of the many reasons why there isn't any crimp. And, and let's be honest, a big reason why there isn't any crimp is that there's no purpose in having crimp. We could see the purpose of the animal fibers for the animals, right? It provides an insulative layer on their surface, a protective layer. So having it be really bouncy and bulky and, and containing lots of insulative air, right? Uh, that makes sense for, uh, for an animal that's producing this layer of hair. But the silk fibers, for the silkworm are to make a very sturdy cocoon. And uh, so the fibers don't need cohesiveness. They're held together by a uh, compound that's excreted uh, as the silk uh, fiber is being extruded from the orifices of the silkworm. I want you to think kind of nostrils here, right? Um, they're triangular shaped. There's two of them next to each other. Uh, obviously not nostrils in the sense that the silkworm isn't, uh, which is the silk larva, isn't breathing out of these orifices, but just in terms of their configuration, right? So two triangular orifices and, um, you know, uh, nostrils uh, exude a kind of mucus, right? Uh, they secrete a mucus. And in the same way, these orifices secrete uh, a kind of um, mucus-like liquid that is called sericin. Um, and kind of like mucus, it hardens into sort of a crusty coating. It's kind of sticky. And so the silk fibers are held together with that. So yes, in fact, silk cocoons are, are, are kind of coated in silk sort of mucus, right? Um, so the the process of cultivating silk, of, of taking silk from something that was found occasionally uh, hanging in cocoons from trees to something that could be produced en masse, um, this was something that was done in China in, uh, you know, the 
3,000 years ago. Uh, uh, we see uh, evidence of, of silk over a long period of time. Uh, I'm not going to get too much into it. I've got a lot of science here to do, but I could do a whole uh, series just about the history of fibers. That really sounds fun. Uh, but uh, uh, there's a, a myth, right, that the empress uh, elevated to the status of goddess once she figured out how to do the, the silk. Um, the story goes that uh, she was in her moonlit garden uh, one evening, uh, uh, right, so you can picture her under a, under a, a beautiful tree, right, and a beautiful, um, you know, obviously any kind of structure you imagine is the wrong era, but picture a, a beautiful outdoor garden structure. And uh, she's, uh, l let's say you want to picture a really pampered uh, uh, empress, right, who does no work for herself. And so when she's sitting there holding her cup of tea, right, in her outstretched hand, um, sort of distractedly gazing at the moon, thinking about how uh, uh, shiny uh, and mysterious the moon was, and she hears a plop, and there in her cup of tea is a silkworm cocoon. Her first thought is to call for her maid, but of course her maid doesn't come, right? So she uses perhaps one of her extraordinarily long fingernails designed to indicate she does no work to fish the cocoon out of her hot tea. But the heat from the tea has melted the Saracen and as she pulls the cocoon from it, it unreels, right? It starts to unroll and she catches one of the fibers with her extraordinarily long fingernail pulls it up, it passes between her and the light of the moon, and she sees this radiant reflection from this very lustrous fiber. And by the time her maid arrives to find out what is going on, um, the empress has already discovered that the silkworm cocoon can be unrolled uh, after being um, uh, dunked in a hot liquid that uh, melts the Saracen, and that the fiber from this cocoon is very long, very strong, and in fact, long enough and strong enough that it's worth human beings going to the trouble to unreeling insect cocoons. Uh, so <clears throat> that's a mythology, but um, the reality is that uh, the moths that are the end stage of the life stages of the, of the silk uh, moth um, lay their eggs, the eggs hatch, right? And then in the larval phase in uh, cultivation in the farms, they're fed massive quantities of mulberry leaves that are harvested from mulberry trees. Uh, the mulberry is the ideal uh, diet for the larva. They produce uh, the, the uh, most transparent, uh, most beautiful silk when they're fed mulberry leaves. Um, the larvae will then uh, begin their metamorphosis into the moths. So they'll spin this cocoon by extruding the liquid uh, fibroid protein out of the two orifices in their head and um, wrap this cocoon around themselves uh, that they are attaching to a leaf or the uh, 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 twig or the branch of a tree. Uh, which is where they've lived their life eating the leaves. Uh, and then um, all you have to do is gather, uh, of course, you wouldn't have them in trees. You have them in trays full of leaves. Uh, and then you simply gather co the cocoons and kill the moths before they can come out, right? In nature, the moths would uh, wake up, uh, shake a little bit, uh, begin to eat through the fibroin uh, fibers and emerge as a moth. Um, in uh, sericulture, which is what we call the industrial production of silk, seri, S-E-R-I, is like the little prefix that means silk. So saracen is like the silk coating material, like lanolin, like it ended in, in, that was the wool coating material. Saracen is the silk coating material. 
And um, so sericulture, uh, we would uh, pick out the, the largest, the fattest, the best looking cocoons. Only those cocoons would the moths be allowed to actually uh, emerge from the cocoon um, and then it, they would be encouraged to mate to produce the next generation of larvae. All the rest would be killed. Uh, dunked in boiling water, right? Sort of a, a silkworm soup uh, or gassed with like uh, truck exhaust to carbon monoxide. Uh, you want to develop a method there that doesn't actually um, leave an unpleasant residue on the cocoons, right? But uh, yeah, so insects were killed in the making of silk. And as I've mentioned previously, if you have a customer base or if, or if you yourself are the sort of person who feels that uh, insects are capable of suffering, then uh, that might bother you. In which case, you're going to want to obtain silk products that are made from wild silk where the moths escaped, uh, chewed their way through the cocoon. Uh, these products will not be shiny and lustrous and smooth because uh, they would be made from um, essentially broken silk fibers, staple-length silk fibers, where because uh, the, the moth does a lot of damage to the cocoon trying to get out. Uh, if you've ever uh, held a silkworm cocoon, they feel uh, they're kind of like the size and shape and weight of a packing peanut. Um, they're naturally empty, right? Um, they wouldn't give them to school kids to examine if there was like a dead moth inside there. Um, and uh, so they'll slice the top off and, and dump the, the moth out. Um, but then, uh, so it's very lightweight because the moth is gone. Um, and, and it's actually kind of hard, right? Uh, you can't really... Um, well, like a packing peanut. You can squeeze it, but uh, it retains its um, cocoon-like shape. Uh, as I mentioned, reeling is what we call the unrolling of the silk fibers. Remember, there were two orifices. So there's actually two fibers that are held together by the Saracen very tightly, right? So as we're unreeling, we're unreeling a pair. Uh, so then we, we don't even have to spin that into yarn, right? We leave, if we leave a bit of the Saracen on, right, we only remove enough to get it started to keep us being able to reel it. Uh, and then we unreel it. Um, and uh, so we'll have like a, a wheel that will wrap it around as we're unreeling. And uh, then um, we can actually weave with it just as it is, right? And uh, so we'll, we'll likely weave something. I'm thinking of the ancient methods here. We'll weave something and then we'll dye it. And uh, before we dye it, we'll wash it well with, uh, with hot soapy water to remove any of the additional Saracen. So we would have the, the benefit of being able to handle two silk fibers at the same time. The whole time we're manufacturing the fabric. And then at the very end, we wash off the additional Saracen. This is a process called degumming and then reveal the beautiful lustrous fiber underneath. Um, so uh, uh, degumming is one of the most common finishes that are done with silk. Uh, the degumming is important because the Saracen is a coating that prevents the, uh, the silk fibers from absorbing moisture. So that makes it tough to dye. Um, also, it's kind of crusty. So if we want the lustrous fiber with the gorgeous uh, trilobal cross-section that reflects the most light possible, we need to get all that Saracen off of there. Uh, makes the fabric much softer now that we've taken off the crusty mucus layer and it now weighs less and um, has less body so it will drape more easily. Um, and uh, so that's uh, the benefit of degumming. 
Now, interestingly, uh, some people kind of liked that weight and body, especially people back in um, uh, centuries past. Uh, you know, the Silk Road was a trading route that came from China uh, through um, uh, through the Gobi Desert, uh, through Afghanistan uh, and Persia, which is now Iran, and down into uh, Turkey, where it then made contact with uh, the Western uh, European um, civilizations uh, that were willing to buy the silk. And uh, at that point, it's worth its weight in gold, right? So you want to buy it, you just stack gold on one side of the scale, they stack silk on the other side, and then you trade. So how do we get back the weight that we would have had when it was uh, still coated in Saracen, but keep it as shiny as possible? Um, this is the true alchemy right here. You want to turn lead into gold, uh, soak silk in lead salts, and then sell it for more gold. Uh, the, the metallic salts, uh, nickel salts, uh, as I mentioned, lead salts, um, you know, we would use a metal that wasn't super valuable. Um, they, uh, uh, they actually, the, the metal ions will bond with the silk protein and, uh, this improves the weight, uh, well improve, I guess it increases the weight. Uh, the fibers then become stiffer because they're sort of coated in a metal carapace. Um, they actually increase uh, the um, production of a sound, right? So as the, the metallic uh, weighted fibers rub against each other, they produce a kind of rustling sound. And this, this sound is called scroop. And scroop was so popular, especially among people of like the Victorian era, right? Uh, it, it, it indicated even from a distance that you were wearing silk. Um, and it meant that even the slightest movements of your body, every, every tiny little tremor or shivering, the, the heaving of your chest as you struggled to breathe in your corset was accompanied by a, a soft little rustling sound. Uh, and so uh, Scroop was very desirable. It was, it was basically considered kind of sexy, right? And so um, this was something that weighting would increase. Uh, weighting is bad. It weakens the fibers. If you come across, uh, for example, a crazy quilt, which were quilts that were made from uh, scraps of silk, kind of like a, an early Facebook, right? So you would um, share scraps with your friends and then each of you would make a, a quilt square and then share the squares. And then you could look at it and say, oh, remember when Tracy wore that dress and we had that party and Tim wore that tie, right? Um, and so it was like a little snapshot album. Uh, you would embroider little designs on it that would tell a story. Uh, this was not about frugality. People who did this had tons of time, tons of money. It was about uh, sharing the memories produced by the, the textiles. And uh, so any weighted silks that are included in these now 100-year-old quilts have done something called shattering. The, the, the weight of the metal has broken the silk fibers. Uh, uh, very often uh, it was just the warp or the filling that was weighted. And uh, so the, the fibers in one direction break, leaving the other fibers in the other direction just hanging. So rather than a hole, you just have silk threads and it looks kind of like a cat scratched it, right? Uh, it's very distressing. Um, because of this, uh, actually weighting of silk was one of the first things, uh, areas of textiles that was regulated by law uh, in the early 20th century. So legally, you could weight silk 10%, uh, uh, but after that, you're not allowed to weight it anymore uh, because uh, you don't want to damage the, the future of the material. Uh, you're allowed to weight 15% for black, and that's because, well, you know, if you're going to cry that much while you're wearing black silk, uh, you want everybody to be able to hear the rustling of your furtive, um, sad uh, widow's tears. 
right. Uh, that was Queen Victoria that really made that uh, whole thing popular. Uh, again, subject for a whole nother like history of textiles podcast. Uh, so degumming uh, is very common. Waiting, it's kind of like the reverse degumming. Uh, there are some other um, uh, specialty uh, types of silk that we have to talk about or you just won't know what they are. Um, if we say silk, we typically mean cultivated fibers that are in the filament form and have been degummed. If we say raw silk, then we're still meaning cultivated. It came from a farm, so it's not wild silk, right? It's raw silk, but it's left in the gum. So it has a, a less lustrous surface. And, and in fact, it can be great. Uh, interior designers do this quite a lot. They'll combine silk and raw silk in the same uh, textile, potentially, right? So if you dye this with the same dyes, um, the uh, raw silk is less shiny, right? And so then you have a matte luster contrast. Of course, uh, all of the broken fibers from cocoons where the moth actually ate its way out or just fibers that were broken and fell to the floor uh, during reeling are actually swept up and spun into yarns that are called noil. Um, now, technically, they could also be called waste silk, right, because it's just leftover silk fibers, these staple length fibers. But noil is N-O-I-L. Noil is the word for the, the little um, uh, bump that's created by the, the uh, end of a spun silk, uh, uh, you know, in the silk yarn, by the end of the silk fibers that are sticking out. So sort of like little bumps. They often will dye slightly darker color right at the end. Um, and so you'll have this kind of uh, bumpy surface uh, uh, in wool. It's reminiscent of tweed, right? So noil is, it means a little tuft of fiber that's sticking out of the surface. Um, so the noil fabrics are kind of bumpy uh, and uh, have a very interesting visual texture. Uh, let's see, another specialty term, duponi, an Italian word, you know, like du, a duo, Right, uh, Dupani. Uh, Dupani uh, silk is, oh, this is so cool. So it turns out that if two silkworms spin their cocoons right next to each other in such a way that while they're still liquid, before they've hardened, the cocoons touch each other, the silk fibers actually kind of melt into each other, uh, but the chemistry between the two worms is slightly different right? And um, when we go to take the two, these twin cocoons apart, what we'll do is very carefully shear the one cocoon away, leaving a patch on the other cocoon that's like double thick, right? And then the cocoon that was sheared away can be turned into noil, uh, right? And then the cocoon that was double thick is very patiently unreeled, and every place where the other cocoon touched it is now double thick. So we can uh, spin it uh, or just use it as it is, unreeled, weave it, and we end up with fabric that has these um, little short distances where it's double thick. Um, and so it goes thick, thin, thick, thin, thick, thin as the fiber travels around the outside of the yarn. Now imagine, you'd have to get together hundreds of double cocoons in order to do this or just push them close together right as they're cooling. Um, and so Dupani silks um, uh, are were prized by the most wealthy of people, which in this case would have been clerics of the Roman Catholic Church, right? Your bishops, your cardinals, your popes, uh, used in uh, vestments and churches, right? Because it had this um, really rare uh, surface with the, with the thick and thin yarns. Uh, 
when we learn about yarns eventually, uh, we'll learn how we can imitate this uh, during spinning. But uh, this is a naturally occurring phenomenon. Uh, and then uh, lastly, um, uh, I mentioned that uh, raw silk is cultivated silk that's not degummed, but that wild silk is silk that came from silkworms that weren't cultivated. Uh, wild silk is also called tussa, T-U-S-S-A-A, tussa silk. And tussa silk is, um, because they're in the wild, we don't know if they're eating mulberry leaves. Like if they happen to be in an oak uh, forest instead, they're going to eat oak leaves. The tannins uh, in other varieties of leaves can create a, a tan or brown color in the silk fibers. And this is super cool. So if you're an interior designer and you have a, dis a discerning client, um, then they will love the fact that the color in this particular silk fiber is inherent to the fiber and was created by the diet of the silkworm. Uh, very often this is a staple length uh, fibers, so uh, yarns, because the, the wild means that the silk worm, the silk moth actually left the cocoon, so it's been uh, chewed through and is now only staple length. Um, you have to be careful because, of course, how are these cocoons gathered in the wild, right? Is it by little girls who should be in school, right? So you want to sort of make sure and go through the whole story of your sourcing there to ensure that there isn't anything that your clients could object to from a social responsibility perspective. But uh, Tussa silk, uh, brown, irregular, um, uh, occasionally filament, but very often staple length. Uh, I've already really talked quite a bit about the morphology of the silk fiber, but I just want to uh, wrap that up for you just so that I'm sure you understand. It's a very transparent fiber. There's no scales, no cuticles. It's extruded. Um, it's not built by enzymes, right? And so it doesn't have any kind of internal structure or organization. Uh, it's, uh, you know, moderately oriented. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, it's strong. Um, it's very lustrous because it has that uh, trilobal shape. Um, there's no crimp to it, very small diameter, right? Uh, it has really good uh, drape. The hand is very smooth. It doesn't wrinkle very much, uh, right? Uh, um, it wrinkles a bit more than um, uh, similarly uh, light animal fibers like um, uh, alpaca, but um, it's uh, still a, a good and resilient fiber. Uh, I mentioned that you could make... Um, uh, Yarns, uh, you can, technically you can make textiles out of silk uh, from spiders, spider silk from spider webs. Very strong material. Uh, story is that you could pull a 747 with a rope the size of a pencil if it were made from spider silk. Um, uh, silk from silkworms is very strong as well. We use it for things like parachutes, right? Um, but uh, uh, the uh, spider silk, the problem with the spiders is, uh, yeah, they're cannibals. So it's really hard to set up like a whole spider. F oh my, oh, I just want to vomit when I'm even saying these words. It's hard to set up a spider farm <gasps> um, because uh, the spiders just kill each other like the vicious, horrible creatures that they are. I'm sorry to spider lovers out there. What is wrong with you? Spiders are horrible. Um, we have tried to take the DNA that makes the spider protein and put it into, for example, a goat so that the goat extrudes the or expresses the protein in their milk and then you isolate it and make the fibers. Um, I don't know. It just sounds like a lot of work for something that uh, maybe nature just wants us to leave alone. There's spiders. Uh, 
All right. Well, that's the end of protein fibers. Um, ending on that absolutely horrible note. Oh, oh, that Lord of the, oh, Shelob. Oh, oh, I hate spiders. Thank you.